Exodus chapter 1. We're going to begin actually in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter so we can gain a picture of all that's happening. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Reuben, good start. Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, that's Israel, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the people of Israel, oh, sorry, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And... Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast it into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, 
We come to you needy. We come to you because we need you to speak to us this morning. We need your truth. We need your word to wash over us, to purge us of sin and fear and evil, to purge us of doubt and anxiety and stress. Lord, would you speak to your people this morning? Would you apply the word to our hearts? And may we truly change. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. When Maddie and my, or my wife Maddie and myself, we were in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., when we were in there for the Pastors College, we got a chance to go down to um, the, the National Mall and see some of the most incredible kind of sights you can see in America, the, the history of America, all in one long highway. Uh, there's museum after museum, the White House is in that area, Congress is in that area. But one of the great things we went to was the National Gallery of Art. I'm not a big art buff, as you're probably shocked by that, but I'm not a big art buff, but this was a beautiful old marble building, really tall, high ceilings, and in it had some of the most incredible pieces of art. Uh, Now, normally when I go to an art gallery, I just kind of look, oh, that's cool, oh, that's cool, oh, that's cool, and I move on really, really quickly. Like, you can see, you know, grand, huge, in this place, there were some of the paintings were like the size of maybe that whole banner there, and all done with beautiful artistry, and I'd be like, that's great. But for some reason, I don't know what it was, it might have been the marble or being in America or something about it, I stopped and stared a lot at these paintings. And I actually took in, and not just took in the the drama of what was being displayed, but I actually looked for the brush strokes and the, the, the shadow and the lighting and the themes and trying to think, oh, what is he trying to, or she, what is she trying to represent in the painting? Well, it's, that is kind of how we're meant to view reading the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a narrative. It, it's, it's a broad picture. Uh, and you can look at the book of Exodus and just read through it really quickly. And you get like, wow, that's a great story. But it's when you slow down long enough and you stand in front of the majestic masterpiece that you start to see the themes and the finer details of what God is trying to teach his people. And as I studied the passage this week, one of those themes, though there are many things in this passage, one of those things that I think God wants us to dwell on this morning is the theme of fear. Fear. It's a little trace that goes throughout this whole chapter. We had some friends over the other week, and after we'd finished dinner, we were discussing our faith and our life, and one of the comments we made was just that we were reflecting on the fact that we were just still full of fear. Although we are saved by God and we know through Christ that he's defeated Satan's sin and death, we know that heaven is our home, we know that one day he'll return, but for some reason we were all reflecting on the fact that we're pervasively um, impacted by fear. What will happen if or what will they think? What if I do this or what if I don't do that? Perhaps you resonate with those types of questions, those feelings. We sang a lot of songs this morning which talk about the new life that we have in Christ, that death was arrested, uh, my new life began, my one comfort and hope and life and death is that I'm not my own. We have these great truths, but sometimes we don't live in the reality of them. 
What this passage is going to do by God's grace and through the power of His Holy Spirit is teach us how do we live and conquer our fear. There's one main point in this passage that I'm going to draw out today, and it's this. God rewards those who fear Him and frustrates those who oppose Him. What we're going to see in this passage actually is not that we have to conquer our fear by having no fear. We're going to see that the way to conquer our fear is to have an even greater fear, the fear of the Lord. But before we get there, I've got three points. We're going to spend the first two points kind of taking in the narrative, getting the whole picture in. Then we're going to slow down and have God address us in that particular area of fear. So point one this morning is Egypt opposes God, verses 7 through 14. So we sort of need to zoom out a little bit and get the context again. Uh, the, the people of God, God had blessed Abraham and give, given him a promise that he would be a great nation and have a great people. And Abraham's descendants eventually grew to about a number of 70. They were in the land of Egypt um, after a famine. And then that whole generation died and we arrive at verse 7. So even though the patriarchs, the great ones who'd been promised have all died. Verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Uh, This is not just a description of what is happening. This is very pregnant language. The language here goes straight back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, where God promises that God will make a great nation of Israel. So we're seeing this people grow and multiply. But it actually goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 28 as well. See, the language of fruitfulness and multiplication are the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So with verse 7 of Exodus 1, we see this being fulfilled. The the people of God are fruitful and multiplying. They are spreading over all the earth. It's the promise of God, the plan of God, and the people of God going out. And we're not meant to just go, oh, that's great, isn't that nice? We're meant to see, no, 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 this is God who is doing it. This is miraculous growth. This is God's divine hand. It's the hidden hand of God. We haven't actually met God in Exodus yet. He doesn't come through until verse 12 by name and by person until chapter 2, verse 28. But already in verse 7, we're meant to see, okay, God's at work. God's doing something. God's fulfilling his promise and plan. But this is a narrative. And every narrative, I mean, it's a true narrative. It's not just a fictional narrative. needs complication. And that's where Moses, the author, takes us next to the complication in verse 8. We're going to meet the antagonist, Pharaoh. We're going to meet the enemy of God's people. The next 15 chapters are all about this tussle with Pharaoh. So read verse 8 with me. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, 
They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So we meet this new Pharaoh. Now, it's hard to actually know exactly who this Pharaoh is because he's never named in the book of Exodus. The Bible has no problem naming kings. It does it all throughout other parts of the Bible. But here, the name of Pharaoh is left out. Some people think it was one guy. Some people think another. Either way, this Pharaoh is put here to show that he is God's enemy, the people of God's enemy. He doesn't know Joseph. Now, Joseph was the one who actually kept Egypt together as a nation. He had a vision from God that there would be a famine, and through his vision from God, they stored enough food, and they kept the people of God and actually the world in that area alive at the time. But this Pharaoh has chosen to not know Joseph. I think he would have known who Joseph was, but that language of knowing there is more intimate than just cognitive knowledge. He's choosing, I don't know him. I don't want anything to do with this Joseph. You see, this Pharaoh is full of fear. Did you notice his kind of statements about, what if they multiply? What if a war breaks out? What if, what if, what if? He's looking out at this huge people group to the north of his main cities and thinking, "Uh uh-oh. Uh oh, this isn't going to go well because in where geographically where Egypt is, the Israelites are in the north, and if any attacker comes south from the northern area, they're going to come straight through where Israel is. And as they increase in number, they might start thinking, oh, why do we need to be here? We can actually have this land as our own. So Pharaoh starts to you think, oh, we're going to lose our territory, we're going to lose our kingdom, I'm going to lose my dynasty. He doesn't want that to happen. And so he comes up with a plan. And his first plan, there's three plans in this chapter, his first plan is to take the Israelites who were shepherds and grazers and make them slaves. He's going to take these men and women who were agrarian, they had their plots of land and they were fruitful and multiplying, and he's going to put them under bondage, chains around their neck and send them out. And what this would have looked like would have been Men leaving home for a long period of time to go off and build these huge cities, presumably from the ground up. We learn later on um, in the Bible that, and actually earlier, God promises Abraham that the period of the slavery was 400 years. 400 years of back-breaking labor. I think it's probably hard for us in a service economy to kind of get the picture of it. But you've got to imagine these men um, going out and going into the hot desert and building a city from clay and and sand and dust and with a hot oven and kilns and the back-breaking labor and then the, the whips of the taskmasters scourging their back. And not just for a week or a month, but actually number of centuries They go from their privileged position to a position of complete oppression and subjugation. What we see here is we meet our enemy, Pharaoh, of the story. And what it looks like is is it's Pharaoh versus Israel. 
But actually, because we know that God is the one who brought Israel into Egypt, God is the one who's multiplying and blessing them, God is the one who one day will draw them out of Egypt and into the promised land, it's not Pharaoh versus Israel, it's actually Pharaoh versus God. This is not a battle, Peter ends writes, of Israel versus Pharaoh, or even of Moses, as we're going to meet later, versus Pharaoh, but of God versus Pharaoh. Phil Riken says this, Pharaoh is the very picture of a man in rebellion against God. He resented God's people, rejected God's promises, and resisted God's plan. Verse 12, the result of Pharaoh's plan. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The plan totally backfires. What Pharaoh thinks is going to conquer and bring great fame and glory to his name, God totally flips on him. In fact, the language is really cool. If you, if you look at the sentence again, it's not they were oppressed because they multiplied. Actually, it shows God's agency here. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It's like as if as Pharaoh comes at him again, or at Israel again and again, God is just turning up the multiplication factor. And they just keep spreading and Israel whips harder and Israel just goes, keeps on going and going. They make babies. It's, you know, this miraculous turn of events. Why? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning... God frustrates those who oppose him. God frustrates those who oppose him. You see, God is sovereignly in control, leading his people, blessing his people, and even in the midst of severity. But because this is the very beginning of Exodus, we, we need to understand their need for deliverance. So Moses is writing here to give us a picture of how bad the situation was. Look at verses 13 and 14. So they, that's the Egyptians, ruthlessly, watch for all the repetition here, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You've got this picture of complete oppression and the pain, the suffering being multiplied and multiplied ruthlessly, brutally being inflicted upon God's people. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, in fact. We have to kind of enter the story. It's hard. I find it even hard to even depict what it would be like to be under this oppression. Perhaps there's some people groups in Australia who, who may know some of that feeling. Uh, there may be some ancestors or people that have been in slavery from your, your generations may know that. I, I don't know that story. But what God wants us to see here is that they are desperate for deliverance and they have no way out. They need the hand of God to move. They need God to come and win for them. You see, God had gotten them into the mess, so to speak. God was the one multiplying them. So God has to be the one that's going to draw them out. 
But notice too, it's very interesting, and Dave made a great point on this last week, the use of the word serving there. See, in verse 13 and 14, five times a Hebrew word is used to talk about Israel serving. They're going to be serving this cruel dictator, Pharaoh, with hard and bitter service. But that same word there is going to be used by Moses over ten times when he speaks to Pharaoh. Moses is going to approach Pharaoh over ten times and say this, Let my son go that he may serve me. Last week, Dave spoke about that we aren't just saved to be free. It's not like the story of America leaving British oppression, setting up their own nation, their own constitution under God and doing whatever they like. No, it's a story of being saved out of one bondage to be in bondage to another. But it's the movement from a terrible dictator to a kind and loving and gracious God. So they are going to serve, but they won't be serving Pharaoh, they'll be serving God. So, we've got this picture. The complication has arisen. The people of God, though blessed, are under severity. And I think there's partly part of the reason for this being here is that if Israel had stayed prospered and blessed in the north of Egypt, perhaps they never would have seen the need to leave and go to the promised land. Isn't it true that when suffering and trial comes our way, that we see our need for God? that we see our need for deliverance, that when the things of this world are stripped from us, we begin to see that, oh, we need that world to come. When God brings bitterness and trial into our lives, we start to realize, oh, I really need God. And that is exactly what we have here with the people of Israel. Charles Spurgeon says this, God is too good to be unkind And he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I'm sure the people of Israel were feeling the the hard hand of God in this time. And I'm sure they were finding it hard to trace out his mercy and his goodness. And that's what the book of Exodus is here for us to see. That behind all the hardship is the hidden hand of God. So we have Israel under severe oppression. We have Egypt opposing God. And so it leads us to the question, I think Moses is writing this and bringing up the question, how do you live under this type of oppression? How are the people of God meant to react when the worst comes their way? And that brings us in to verses 15 to 22. This is our second point. Israel fears God. So obviously the plan wasn't working, Um, the policy, the politics of Pharaoh weren't getting a good opinion poll rating. Um, As the, the Israelites grew, Pharaoh comes up with a new plan in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, These are hard. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. See, Pharaoh's plan to subjugate the people of God, to limit their fertility, to break them um, through the hardship of slavery, to potentially kill out a whole generation, fails. So now he turns to another plan, an insidious plan. 
He takes the Hebrew midwives whose job was to bring life into the world and gives them a new task, bring death. He sends them out into their people. Presumably these two midwives are the, the head midwives for the, the great nation of Israel that, is, um, that has begun uh, to grow. And he says, take, take a look at, after the baby's born, when you deliver the baby, and if you see it's a son, I guess he was asking to quietly put the son to death. If it's a daughter, it may live. And the plan here is, is dark and twisted because what Pharaoh will get is one generation of slaves and then his real fear is that the next generation would be an army and so he kills, he's trying to kill off that next generation. So he gets the slaves to build these store cities and then the next generation will be wiped out. The women will remain. He can interbreed with the women and have them as his own people, a new slave race. He's certainly not just opposing Israel, he's opposing God. God is the bringer of life. God is the author of life. And he is setting himself up as the destroyer. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be those two women? To receive a charge from your boss, your your government. To do everything that is opposed to your whole nature. I can't imagine the fear. I can't imagine the the mixed feelings. I can't imagine the turmoil and anxiety they would have gone through. So what will they do? Well, let's read verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh's plan backfires once again. These Hebrew women, instead of cowering in fear to the most powerful man in the world, they fear God. You see, Pharaoh is dangerous. Pharaoh is one to be feared, but God is far more terrifying to these women. They're not motivated, well, they, they don't remove their fear. I'm sure when they stood before Pharaoh and they had to come and stand before him, I'm sure there was lots of feelings and, you know, the circumstance of fear was heavy upon them. They were making a choice between basically life and death. You don't really oppose Pharaoh and come off lightly. But when they considered their options, the Bible tells us that they feared God. The fear of God. What does that mean? Well, in this section of the Old Testament, the fear of God basically means to live as if God really exists. It's to live with an awareness that he watches and judges our actions and one day we will have to account for them. To fear God is to live as if God really exists. That one day we'll have to give account for our actions. You see, Pharaoh had given them a terrible edict and he was a fearful man, a man to be feared, yet they knew that there was a God. What, we, what they knew of God, we don't know 100%. Perhaps they knew of God's command to Noah, 
that if anyone sheds the blood of man by his own blood, that will be shed. Perhaps they knew of the story of Genesis where God is the bringer of life, but in any way they knew that to kill the baby boys was to double-cross God. It was to go against God's plan for Abraham, God's plan to bring the Redeemer, the snake crusher, into the world. This is a warning to anyone here who has not yet repented of their sin and believed in God. God really exists. He's real. And we will have to give an account for all of our actions to Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says this, And no creature, not even a lowly Hebrew midwife, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give account. There's an appropriate fear that goes along with believing in God. He is holy and a judge. But we don't have to live in fear of judgment because we stand on the other side of the cross. We stand thousands of years later after a deliverer has come. You see, through the fear of these women, a son was born 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And through his death and resurrection, he has dealt with all of those acts that you would never want God to judge you for. He has dealt with all of the failures, all of your shame, and all of your disgrace. And so although it's appropriate to fear God because He's holy and righteous, there's another element to fear in God, which is knowing Him for who He really is, gracious and kind and merciful, the God who passes over our sins through the sacrifice of His Son. So rightly understood, the fear of God is both the fear of judgment and the knowledge that he really exists, but also the knowledge that he is true and good and merciful and kind, and so we can draw near to him. The fear of God is a warning to those who do not yet know him, but it's a comfort for those who already do. Isn't it remarkable that in the story of Exodus, it begins not with a man hero, but two women? And in fact, the next three heroes we're going to meet Moses' mum, Moses' sister, and the Pharaoh's daughter. The first five heroes in the book of Exodus are all women. And isn't that a beautiful reality in the Bible that many of the heroines... Or, do you say heroes? Can you say heroes for women? Or do you have to say heroines? I should have figured this out before I preached. Many of the heroes of the Bible are women. And many of the heroes of church history are women. And in fact, many of the heroes of the Bible are men, but behind all those men are great women of God as well. At Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, we're a complementarian church. We believe that there are divine, well, divine, divinely made differences between men and women. That men and women have different roles. That men and women have different aspects of their character and nature. But because we're complementarian, it doesn't mean women can't be heroes. The Bible makes women heroes. And here we have two heroes par excellence. Two women who stand before the most powerful man in the world and do not give in to fear. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible narrative, and they're an incredible example. But what about the problem of their lying? See, verse 19 has caused a lot of consternation for people over the years because the Hebrew midwives are sort of coming into Pharaoh, and it's either an insult, the Hebrew women are much stronger than your Egyptian women, or it's an 
evasion of the truth. Oh, they just have babies before we get there. Or it's some kind of downright mistruth, lie, if you want to call it. Well, verse 20 actually gives us the answer to how to interpret that. You see, the way biblical narrative works is that God, through the Holy Spirit, often makes judgments in the text and gives us a direct answer to our question. So look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these two women, they come up with this story. They side with God, not with Pharaoh, and God rewards them. It was likely that midwives in that period of time were women who were barren. They had no children, and they devoted their lives to bringing new life into the world. And now, at the end of their lives, potentially they're older women, they are given a family. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's mercy. And it highlights the major point of this passage, which is, God rewards those who fear him and frustrates those who oppose him. You see, through these two women, the people of Israel, again, they multiply. Pharaoh's plan fails again. Plan one, failure. Plan two, failure. His policy, his poll ratings are going down through these Hebrew women. So he comes up with a third plan, the final plan in verse 22. An even darker plan. It's easy because we've read the story so many times to just pass over this verse. But let's read it again. And imagine what it would be like. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's hard to imagine the reality of that verse. Imagine being an enslaved people group in another nation where it was legal for a man or woman to come into your home after you'd given birth and take your child from you and throw it into a river. It wasn't just legal, it was policy. It was the edict of the king. They were meant to do that. The twistedness and demonic element of this pharaoh is in full swing here. He's doing whatever he can to eliminate these people. He is so driven by his fear of losing his nation that he will go to the most extreme lengths, these anti-human lengths to preserve his own life. And we're going to see later on that again, God will frustrate his plan because one day the whole army of Egypt will be thrown into a river and crushed by waves. And the saviour of Israel, Moses, will be a boy that is cast into the river and drawn out by his very own daughter. God rewards those who fear him, but opposes, or frustrates those who oppose him. Matt Chandler, a preacher in Dallas, says this about Pharaoh. Every time he acts... He tightens the noose around his own neck and loosens the bonds of God's people. So, Egypt opposes Israel. Israel fears God. 
God rewards those who fear him and frustrates those who oppose him. That principle is true throughout all of Scripture. It's picked up in Proverbs 3.23, it's picked up in James, it's picked up in 1 Peter. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We've had the drama painted before our eyes. We're, we're kind of walking past, we're in the gallery, we've seen the big canvas, we're like, wow, that's a great story. But now we're going to spend the rest of our time slowing down, getting our little espresso and being the art critic, so to speak, and watching and letting God take the major theme of this passage and apply it to our life in point three. How does this translate and link to us today? So point three is this, whom do you fear Whom do you fear? As I've mentioned, one of the current themes of this passage is fear. Verses kind of 8 to 10, you see Pharaoh afraid of the people of Israel. In verse 12, you may have noticed that the the people of Egypt are also afraid. It says this, they were in dread of the people of Israel. And verses 17 and 21, you see the two Hebrew midwives who were heroically feared God. All three groups are motivated by fear. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Hebrew women. All three groups are dominated and motivated by their fear. And if we're honest with ourselves, well, if I'm honest with myself, the people I resonate most with in this story, I wish it was the Hebrew women. I wish I could tell the story of me fighting my fear and standing up and, and you know, being this brave warrior and soldier of God who stands up against you know, the enemies. But the reality is I'm far more like the Egyptians and Pharaoh. I'm far more prone to cower in fear. I'm far more prone to think, what if? What will they think? What will happen? I'm far more prone to be one dominated by fear. Yes, I'm on, I have a new master. Yes, I follow Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm saved by grace. Yes, I know heaven is my home. Yes, I know that God is with me to the very ends of the age. Yes, I know all of that, yet for some reason I still live with fear. Perhaps you do as well. Perhaps you are more like the Egyptians and Pharaoh. The fear of missing out or not measuring up. Does any of that resonate? The fear of failure or being exposed. You know, it can get to the smallest little things. Sometimes fearing correcting your own child that they won't like you anymore. Or at school, you're fearing of what you do with a particular group that you won't be popular And as we grow up, the same thing happens at work, doesn't it? Perhaps you fear upsetting your enemies again, letting down your friends or disappointing your parents. Often we call this peer pressure, people-pleasing, anxiety, low self-esteem. But biblically defined, this is called fear of man. When we live dominated by what other people think of us, when we live with pictures of other people's perspective in our minds and it dominates how we live, that's called fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, 
But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Ed Welch summarizes this well in his great book. If you haven't read it and you struggle with fear of man, and I put it to you, you probably do struggle with fear of man. You might just not. You know it yet. A great book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says that we fear people because they can shame us, they can reject us, and they can physically hurt us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger than God. And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. Whatever you think you need, you come to fear. If you need people to respect you and to think well of you and to fit in and to meet their expectations, you will fear them. It explains so much of my life. I thought it was just natural before I got up to speak or whatever that I would be anxious and feel really fearful. No, it wasn't. It was fear of man. I needed people to think I was great. I needed people to think that was awesome. And I was so consumed with how I lived and what they thought of me that the fear of God was out of my eyes. I wasn't concerned that God would be glorified, that God would be seen as who he truly is. I wasn't as concerned. I was more concerned that I would get the glory. And maybe God would get some too in the process. Whatever you think you need, you come to fear. And this passage is an incredible example, it's an incredible teaching that the solution to our fear is not to remove our fear, but to fear God. The solution to our fear of man is to reorient that fear in a greater fear of God. Yes, Pharaoh is scary, but God is far more terrifying. That's what Shifra and Puah believed. So church, have you learned to fear God? Deuteronomy 4.10 says this, The Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. Do you notice the, the verb there? They may learn to fear me. This is good news, actually. Because we're not born fearers of God. We're not genetically, some of us aren't more genetically fearers of God or sociologically fearers of God. No, no, no. We're born sinful. We're born under fear of man and fear of death and fear of sin. And we have to learn to fear God. And if we have to learn to fear God because of the grace that's in Jesus Christ, we can. God is on our side to help us to learn to fear him. So church, have you learned, like these two women, to fear God? It's a lesson I'm continually needing to learn. How do we learn it? Very simply, we need to know God for who he really is and do what he commands. The first element is we really need to know who God is. He is both the Holy One, who thunders from Mount Sinai and causes dread in people's souls. 
and the one who proclaims, I am a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's both of those things. He knows all your sin and covers it in Jesus Christ. He knows all your shame and yet takes it away in Jesus Christ. He's the one to be feared because he knows everything about you and he's the one to be adored because he adopts you in through his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. We need to learn of who he truly is so that when we stand before our pharaohs, if you want to use that language, we have a bigger picture of who he is. And secondly, we need to learn what he's called us to do. You see, fear of man is not just an intellectual concept. Shifra and Pua cannot say, we fear God, and then put the babies to death. It's not how it works. The fear of God leads to action. The fear of God leads to living in the role and calling that he's given you. The fear of God leads you to do what he commands you to do, even if it means you lose acceptance, even if it means people shame you, or even if it means people hurt you. That's what the fear of God actually looks like in practice. We need to know who God really is, and that's what Exodus is going to do, the God who makes himself known. We're going, to, we're going to learn more about the nature and character of God, and we need to do what he has commanded. Ecclesiastes 12.13 actually summarizes it perfectly. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Isn't that interesting? Fear God, keep his commandments. It's exactly what Shifra and Pua have done. They knew who God was, and they knew how God was calling them to act. Brothers and sisters, I'm addressing this to myself first. Have you learned to fear God? Have you decided this day whom you will serve? See, every day we have opportunities to demonstrate whom we fear by whom we serve. Every day we actually have opportunities to demonstrate whom we worship by whom, whom we fear by whom we worship. Every day we have opportunities to insert our name in the verse. I feared God and did not go on that website. I feared God and did not cheat on my taxes. I feared God and I did not swear or tell a coarse joke. I feared God and did not leave my spouse. I feared God and did not support same-sex marriage. I feared God and did not dishonor my parents. I feared God and did not compromise, collapse, or cave in. Because I fear God, I did not. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Brothers and sisters, take your fears. Take those faces of people whom you dread. Take those faces, the the perspectives, the the judgments, the evaluation of the people whom you dread the most, that dominate the, the actual decisions that you make. Take them to God. Cast those names before him. Repent of your fear. I need to repent of my fear. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. For God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. God rewards those who fear him and frustrates those who oppose him. You have the opportunity of a lifetime. You have the reward of God on your side as we go out in his grace and by the power of his spirit, fearing him and obeying him. Who do you fear?
Pharaoh opposed God and was frustrated and eventually destroyed. Shifra and Pua feared God and were rewarded and the nation of Israel were eventually saved. God rewards those who fear him and frustrates those who oppose him. Church, we have the opportunity to fear God and keep his commandments. And it's not a message, this is not a message of you're an overcomer and we can all do it, let's all get excited and go and fear God in the world. Woohoo! It's not that. Because we can't do it. I can't do it. My own experience and your experience teaches you, you can't do it. You can't overcome your fears apart from the grace of God. We need him to act on our behalf. We need him to go before us, and he already has. The victory is in Christ Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his imminent return, and the power of his Holy Spirit. God rewards those who fear him and frustrates those who oppose him. Live in his reward. Let's pray. Lord God, we are aware that we're more defined and more ably described by our weakness and our failure to fear you than our victory. Lord, for some reason, we need people to respect us, to approve of us, to love us. Yet we already have all of that in you. All of it through your son, Jesus. Lord God, I pray and ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we as a church would be a church that is marked by the fear of you. The knowledge of who you really are, the Holy One of Israel, a God merciful and gracious. And Lord, would we then go out Monday morning and fear you in our lives? Would we not fear our family, our friends, our children, our bosses, those we've never even met on Facebook. Lord, may we fear you. And may you, Lord, reward us for that fear, whether here on earth or in the promised land to come. We need you. We cry out to you as your people, Lord. Fill us with a holy and joyful fear of you. In Jesus' name, amen.